Are you ready for some high adventure? Coming up next on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike. Thorndike is the original fictional forensic detective from the early 1900s, using science to aid the art of detection to bring criminals to justice. This time, presenting The New Jersey Sphinx, written by R. Austin Freeman, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. Well, Jervis, what have you left to do on the Lester case? Oh, Thorndike, the uh, final report is the bookshop to be bound. I'm to pick it up this afternoon. Ah, good, good. Now, what about... Um... Look at that man ahead! Oh my goodness, he seems to be in trouble. Uh, an accident, perhaps. <laughs> Sir, can you tell me where to find a doctor? I'm a medical man, uh, so is my friend here. Well, come with me quickly. A most dreadful thing has happened. Now, try to calm yourself a little and, and, and tell us what happened. Uh, my, my cousin. Just now, I went into his room and found him on the floor, staring at the ceiling and blowing like this. <sighs> I called his name. Shook him. Nothing. Our building is back there. There. Check his pulse, Jervis. Shallow breaths. Pulse faint. Flickering. Oh, gone. He must have burst one of the large arteries. Apparently, though, unexpected at his age. But, but wait, what's this? A few drops of blood in his ear. Ah, see how his neck moves. There's a fracture at the base of the skull and quite distinct signs of contusion of the scalp. Can you throw any light on this? What, me? I don't understand. What does it mean? It means he's received a heavy blow on his head. There was a man visiting here. Shortest gentleman with a dark suit and a hard felt hat. Do you have any idea who it was? Uh, none. I caught just a glimpse of them coming up the stairs. My room is across the hall. Couldn't hear anything they were saying. About 15 minutes later, I heard the door open and shut and someone leaving quietly. What then? I was writing a letter at the time, so once I finished, I came over here to find out who the visitor was. I thought maybe it was someone who had come to negotiate for the ruby. To what ruby do you refer, sir? <laughs> the Great Ruby! Ah, but of course you are not aware. His belt. He wears a leather belt under his shirt with pockets. Uh, forgive me, my cousin. Gone? All his pockets are empty. How little would it signify? But you, dearest cousin, like a brother to me, you are gone too. This wretch must die. This sordid brute who has crushed out a precious life like one would carelessly crush a fly, and just for the sake of a crystal, he must die if I have to follow him to strangle him with my own hands. I, I, I sympathize with you, sir. If you think that your cousin has been murdered for robbery, the murderer's life is already forfeited. The fact of murder will be determined by proper inquiry. In the meanwhile, we have to ascertain who this unknown man is and what happened while he was with your cousin. But the man disappeared. What can we do? Let's look around and see if we can judge what happened in the room. What, for instance, is this? It's the little bag in which my cousin carried the ruby. He must have removed it himself from his belt. The ruby didn't drop by chance. Nothing I can see over here. Or over here. It's gone. Of course it's gone. The murderous villain. All I've found is a hat on the floor under the table over there. Uh, whose hat is that? Is it not your cousin's? The Great Ruby. But of course you are not aware. 
His belt. He wears a leather belt under his shirt with pockets. Forgive me, my cousin. Mm. If it is, this is a most important fact. Important in two respects. Uh, could you let me see your hat, sir? Uh, certainly. It's in my room across the hall. Excuse me a moment. Uh, Jervis, tell me when he returns. What are you doing? Trying this hat on the deceased. There, there. It's at least a practical fit, which is of some significance. He's coming back. Ah, my hat. Ah, thank you, sir. You know, they are quite similar. Both black, hard-felt hats in the bowler shape. Good quality. Similar wear and tear. Uh, indeed, but see this. Uh, the insides are quite different. Well, my cousin's hat has white silk lining and his initials, just as I said. Uh, and this other one is unlined. It seems fairly obvious to me. Both men place their hats crown upwards on the table. In, in some way, perhaps during a struggle, the visitor's hat was knocked down and rolled under the table. The stranger then picked up the only hat visible and left. I should think he would notice that it felt different. Not necessarily. If anything, he probably assumed it was the wrong way around. Remember, he would be extremely hurried and agitated. Once he left the house, he would not dare take the risk of returning, though no doubt he realizes the gravity of the mistake. Uh, in indeed, uh, precisely. Now, Mr... Um... Uh, Baramji. Clarence Baramji. Uh, Mr. Baramji, would you mind giving us a few particulars about this missing ruby? Yes. Come over to my room and I'll tell you about it. But first I want to lay my poor cousin decently upon his bed. I think the body ought not be moved until the police have seen it. Perhaps you are right. Though it seems callous to leave him laying there. So, Mr. Barangi, what can you tell us about this ruby? Well, my cousin and I were both interested in gemstones. He was a very fine judge of the qualities of rubies. And yourself? I deal in all kinds of stones found in the East Indies. Well, doesn't this put you in competition with your cousin? <laughs> Not at all. He dealt almost exclusively in rubies. He used to travel to Burma in search of them. Was this found in Burma? From Mogulk in Upper Burma. Oh, can you describe it? Perfect. Flawless. 28 carats weight and a most gorgeous color. What were his plans for the ruby? Uh, have it recut and polished, I imagine. It was roughly cut. Practically unsellable to most as is. What do you mean by that? Uh, it doesn't appear valuable. But if a person knew what they were looking at and made an advantageous offer, then... So, so what, what exactly is the value of such a stone, sir? <laughs> Impossible to say. A really fine, large ruby of perfect color is far, far more valuable than the finest diamond of the same size. Uh, perhaps an estimate, then? The value rises out of proportion with increasing size. 50,000 pounds would be a moderate price. Ah, we shall have to let the police know what has happened, but as Dr. Jervis and I will be called as witnesses, I should like to examine this hat a little more closely before you hand it over to the police. The hat? Yes. Do you have a small, hard brush handy? A, a dry nail brush would do. Uh, certainly. Will this suffice? Oh, certainly. Uh, I thank you for your help. We must not depend on the police only. Why do you brush dust off the outside? What will it tell you? Oh, probably nothing. But this hat is our only direct clue to the identity of the man who was with your cousin. And we must make the most of it. Does he do this often? Always. Dust is a mass of fragments detached from surrounding objects. If the objects are unusual, the dust may be quite distinctive. 
You could easily identify the hat of, say, a miller or a cement worker. What's that you pulled from inside the hat? Uh, these folded strips of paper were tucked in the leather headlining. Uh, look through them, Jervis. Uh, be a good man. Copy them down when you can in your notebook for future reference. It's only the right-hand portion with the ending of words. E-L, three ounces. Five, D-W-T, followed by E-E-P, nine and a half ounces. Hmm. D-W-T is short for pennyweight, and that is a unit of measure for gold. Well, then... The envelope portion has the remains of an address. One line ends with N, the second, Don, W.C. Uh, here, I, I folded a makeshift pouch to transport the dust back to the lab. May I be permitted to call on you and hear what sort of information you were able to gather from the dust and these paper scraps? Of course, of course. I would imagine the police will be here shortly. We'll give them the facts and then head home to start our own investigation. Back so soon, Jervis? Unless his report is bound and ready. I've been thinking about the ruby and this dead man all afternoon. If the police have no more information than we have, they won't have much to go on. No, no, that's true. But remember, this crime is not an isolated one. It's the fourth of practically the same kind in the last six months. I understand the police have some kind of information, though it can't be worth much since no arrests have been made. You think the accidental exchange of hats holds evidence? I, I do. In the first place, it suggests a hurried departure, which seems to connect the missing man with the crime. Remember, he's also wearing the dead man's hat. He's not likely to continue wearing it. No, no. Still, it may be seen and furnish a clue. Uh, we know the hat fits him fairly well, and we know its size, so we know the size of his head. Finally, we have the man's own hat. I don't fancy the police will get much information from that. Uh, probably not. Yet it offered two or three interesting suggestions, as you've probably observed. It made no suggestions, whatever, to me. <laughs> then I can only recommend you to recall our simple inspection and consider the significance of what we found. I have nothing. But clearly you do. You have examined the dust, I see. Does it throw any fresh light on the case? Uh, sadly, very little. There are a few hairs on the inside. The bulk is just common dust, although the sample from the outside of the hat shows minute traces of lead oxide. What do you make of that, Jervis? Well, the man could be a plumber or a painter. Either is possible and worth considering. But you don't think so. You've obviously consulted all of the post office directories from the whole of London. There's five laid out on the table over there. What did you find out from the hairs inside the hat? Well, both are lightish brown and one of the atrophic exclamation mark type that one finds at the edges of bald patches. So we're looking for a man who may have a balding spot and wears a hat. <laughs> you should probably get that, Jervis. Sounds like Superintendent Miller's knock. What's he doing here at this hour? Good evening, Dr. Jervis and Dr. Thorndike. Sorry for the lateness of the hour. I dare say you can guess what I've come about. <laughs> the murdered man and his missing ruby. Yes, I was sent to look into this Baramji case. And in giving me the facts, he said he'd been to see you. Mr. Kambada sends his regards. He's been retained by Baramji. I hear you've examined the missing man's hat. Well, so have I. And I don't mind telling you, I could learn nothing from it. I haven't learned much myself. But you've picked up something. 
If it is only a hint. <laughs> Tell me, what is your current premise? Well, the New Jersey Sphinx. But we haven't got anything on him. Oh, have you taken to calling criminals by the sensationalized names the papers give? Oh, come now, Miller, be reasonable. He's bold, wary, plays a lone hand, and he sticks at nothing. He has no accomplices, and he kills every time. There is reason to believe he's behind the other robberies. Wasn't he operating in New York City? Dodged them. Took a steamer to London. The American police only got near him once. And that once gives us the only clue we have. Uh-huh. Fingerprints, I expect? Yes, and very poor ones, too. So rough, you can hardly make out the pattern. And even those aren't guaranteed to be his. I understand there's a photograph as well. Poor quality. All it shows is that he has a mop of hair and a pointed beard. Or he had when the photograph was taken. Time passes. It's practically worthless for identification. But still, it's all we have. Uh, So tell me, uh, what's your next step, Superintendent? What I propose is this, Thorndike. We want this man, and so do you. We've worked together before and can trust one another. I'm going to lay my cards on the table, and I ask you do the same. Uh, But, my dear Miller, I have no cards. I haven't a single solid fact. I have two photographs, one of the man and one of his fingerprints. I really haven't got a single real fact, and I'm unwilling to make merely speculative suggestions. Obviously, they were left on a rough surface. You can barely see the ridges. You know, you do get prints something like those from men who use files and perhaps handle rough metal. (laughs) Now, Dr. Thorndike, can't you give us a lead of any kind? (laughs) Superintendent Miller, I really haven't got a single real fact, and I'm unwilling to make merely speculative suggestions. Oh, that's all right. Give us a start. I shan't complain if it comes to nothing. (sighs) Well... I was thinking of getting a few particulars as to the various tenants of number 51 Clifford's Inn. Uh, Perhaps you could do it more easily and it might be worth your while? 51 Clifford's Inn? Who lives there? I haven't the slightest idea. So the evidence from the hat links it to the building? It's probably the wrong place entirely, Superintendent. Merely a speculative suggestion and, you know, I don't like making those routine... But why shouldn't we go together? Too late tonight, and I can't manage tomorrow morning. Let's say tomorrow afternoon. Two heads are better than one, you know. Especially when the second one is yours. Or perhaps three would be better still. I have nothing on my schedule. (laughs) Very well, then. Uh, We'll both come. Three tomorrow afternoon. I'll come by here to collect you both on the way. Well, that's enough work for tonight, Jervis. Take care for a short stroll through the leafy shades of Fleet Street. I have two letters I need to post. The rural solitude of Fleet Street attracts me at all hours. Let me grab my hat. I say, Jervis, have you ever been to Clifford's Inn? Oh, never more than passing through. But it's not too late for an exploratory visit. (laughs) That's certainly true. Care to share about those two letters? One was on our letterhead and the other wasn't. Come now, Thorndike. I know it's related to the case. 
I really don't have any facts. Yes, I know. Ah, here we are. Number 51. So this is where our friend hangs out his flag. <laughs> Cherbis, you're as bad as Miller. I've merely suggested a possible connection between these premises and the hat that was left at Bedford Place. As to the nature of that connection, I have no idea. I assure you, I am on the thinnest possible ice. Are you? My hypothesis is in the highest degree of speculation, and I should not have given Miller a hint. But he was so eager and willing to help. And I wanted to see that fingerprint. Let's take a look at the names of the occupants. Uh, where'd you see that? There. The nameplate by the door. Ground floor, a firm of photo engravers. First floor, Mr. Character. A uh, recent tenant. Uh, the paint on the plaque is new. Second floor, Mrs. Burt and Hiley, metallurgists. Uh, Burt has departed. How do you know that? Oh, the thin red lines crossing out his name. That makes the remaining gentleman, presumably Mr. Hiley, lights are on. It appears he has a residential room as well as a business on the premises. <laughs> wonder who and what Mr. Carrington is. I dare say we shall find out tomorrow. I hope we do. Well, Jervis, the superintendent should be along shortly. Would you like me to carry that bag? If you wish. Uh, Jervis, take a peek inside. Is that quartz in there? Have we extended our activities into mineralogy? <laughs> the strategic uses of quartz pieces will develop in due course, I promise. Aside from breaking windows with them? Aside from that, naturally. Reflect on possible peaceful uses for the time being. Look, Miller's here. I just saw him pass the window. What is your plan to get into the building? Right. I'm to assume you fine doctors have a plan? I've passed through here almost daily, and the porter knows me by sight. The building has a sign out saying they have chambers and offices to let. That's your way in? <laughs> My good man, it doesn't have to be complicated to be effective. The porter won't know you or I, but I suppose you can hang back a bit. Good afternoon, Mr. Larkin. Afternoon, gentlemen. I've been asked to get particulars of vacant chambers. Have you got any at the moment? Let me see. There's a ground floor chamber at number five, although it's rather dark. Also a small one at number 12. And then there is, oh yes, there's a good first floor set at number 51. They wouldn't have been vacant except that Mr. Carrington, the tenant, had suddenly gone abroad. I had a letter from him this morning with his key in it. Funny letter too. In what way is the letter funny? See for yourself. Dear sir, I am giving up my chambers at number 51, as I have been suddenly called abroad. I enclose the key, but am not troubling you with the rent. The sale of my costly furniture will more than cover it. Yours sincerely, A. Carrington. Postmark East London. Letterhead from the Baltic Shipping Company. Whopping. Looks like he sailed on the SS Gothenburg. So, Larkin, in what condition is this furniture? You'll see, if you care to look at the room. I think it might suit you. There are good set. <laughs> Are the tenants quiet, then? Yes, pretty quiet. There's a metallurgist overhead, Hiley. Used to be Bert and Hiley, but Bert has gone to the city. I don't think Hiley does much business now. You know, I think I used to meet Hiley sometimes. He's a rather tall, dark man, isn't he? No, that would have been Bert. Hiley is a little, fairish man, rather bald with a pretty rich personality, if you know what I mean. 
That may account for the falling off of the business. Hadn't we better have a look at the rooms? Can we see them now, Mr. Lurk? Certainly. You've got the key. Let me have it when you've seen the rooms. And whatever you do, be careful of the furniture. Really? Costly furniture? Ha <laughs> Look at this junk. Mr. Carrington has done a mizzle. Not much here. An old battered Windsor chair, kitchen table, dilapidated deck chair. There's only a camp bed without sheets, a water pail, and a hand-washing basin here in the bedroom. The kitchen has a gas stove, saucepan, and a fry pan. Hello. He's left a hat behind. Quite a good hat, too. Great Solomon Eagle. Do you see that? Doctor, it's the hat. Yes, I do. It appears to be a missing link, but what are you going to do now? These Baltic boats put in at Hull and Newcastle, and they're slow boats at that. I'll wire Newcastle to have the ship detained and take Inspector Badger down to make the arrest. I owe you a thousand thanks for your valuable tip. Miller should have gotten a description of the man and some further particulars before leaving. Yes. He would have much better have waited until you finished talking with the porter. We'll certainly get more particulars when we take back the key. I dare say we'll get more information from the gentleman who lives on the floor above. I think we'd better go up and interview him now. Oh? I wrote him last night under Poulton's name and made a metallurgical appointment. So that explains one of the letters. But what of the lumps of quartz in my bag? Ah, Jervis, I expect you'll see soon enough. How do you do, Mr. Hiley? You got my letter, I suppose? Yes, but I'm not Hiley. He's away and I'm carrying on. I'm thinking of taking over his business, if there is any to take over. My name is Sherwood. Have you got samples? Oh, yes, of course. Let me have them. Uh, here. Hmm. Uh, this stuff doesn't seem to contain much gold, but we shall see when we make the assessment. Uh, what do you think of this one? Mm, this looks more hopeful. Rather rich, in fact. You're mighty interested in that kiln, Mr. Poulton. Something catch your eye? Uh, fascinating equipment, don't you think? Uh, two kilpole furnaces and a kiln. Stop! I don't want you wandering around my shop and touching my supplies. Uh, but they're interesting. I, I mean, take this dish, for example. It, Put uh, that down, Colton. Do you hear? Drop it. Oh, if you insist, I'm sorry. Get, get away from the pieces! And why might you have a human tooth in your ashes? Go on! Back away, or I'll drop you right now. Jervis, block the door. Who are... I... Oh. Uh, You've pinned uh, him, Thorndike. Uh, uh, well, what the hell do you think you're doing? I haven't done anything. You threatened to kill my colleague. See if you can find some cord, Jervis, and, and grab that pistol off the floor. I want him tied up good, if we can, right now. We'll let Superintendent Miller sort out the charges. I'm sure there's a reasonable explanation for finding a human tooth in the broken bits it of your It was in the ashes when I got here. I'm a metallurgist. Ha! If you're a metallurgist, I'm a dock worker. Any schoolboy would know, Mr. Sherwood, that I handed you pieces of quartz. You're a fake. He's tied securely now. You're not a cops. You can't hold me. Get your hands off me. Once I'm done looking for a rather large ruby that I suspect you have on your person, and there it is. I have Baramji's ruby. I'll pop out and telegraph Superintendent Miller to come back. <laughs> good, good. I would like him to get credit for this.
Right. Well, he's off to the yard. Thanks for the interception, Dr. Jervis. So, would you both like to know how I arrived at my conclusion? If it won't put you out. I haven't the foggiest idea how that hat brought us here. Well, Jervis, I'm not surprised. The initial clue of the hat was actually the weakest link in the damning chain. But it was the starting point. It was that. Uh, the hat clearly had more than one owner. No man would buy a new hat that fitted so badly as to need all that extra padding tucked inside. Well, were the slips of paper used as packing helpful? Their arrangements suggested that the hat had originally belonged to a man with a short head. What did it suggest about the current wearer? That he is a long-headed man wearing a hat that does not fit his own head. That's all? I wear hats. I know how padding works. Was the paper inside useful in any other way? Looked like gibberish to me. Oh, quite hardly gibberish. It was quite helpful in narrowing down the location. One strip appeared to be from an envelope. Very few streets ending with I-N-N, in, remain in West Central London. Incomprehensible. And, <laughs> and the other papers? I've noted here a word ending in E-L, followed by measurements three ounces, and five DWT. It appeared to be torn from a list. The next bit said EEP, nine and a half ounces. Don't tell me you figured out what that list was. <laughs> it wasn't that hard, Miller. The only people who use troy weights are those who deal in precious metals. The DWT is penny weights, and the E-L, or L, was from the word lemel, which specifically relates to gold. Thus, the paper was connected to either a goldsmith or perhaps a gold refiner. That's what you were looking in the directories for. The only goldsmith or assayist who met your parameters was Hylies. Of Clifford's Inn. <laughs> look, all of this I can follow, but how the deuce do you know to look on the second floor when we found the hat on the first. Oh, my dear superintendent, consider the facts. That hat would have been enough to hang the man who left it there. Can you imagine this astute, wary villain forgetting it was his victim's hat? No, that's too much of a novice mistake. Ah, the missing hat was connected to the first floor, but the murderer's hat to the second. The dust and paper stuffed inside point to Hiley, the metallurgist. There's no reason to think a murderer wouldn't kill again. After laying out this elaborate trail for the police and hiding up here, it's logical to assume he had already done away with the real Hiley. Did you see that tooth in the killed Miller? Gruesome way to go. An unrivaled method to dispose of the body, with three furnaces in there and a barrel of ash for making the cupels with. How'd you think to look there, Thorndyke? I checked the gas meter in the hall. A large amount had been used recently. There's another nail in the proverbial coffin. Upon shaking his hand, I noticed at once he suffered from an extreme form of ichthyosis. Itch-o-what? Ichthyosis. Dry, scaly skin. That explains why his fingerprints were so broken and hard to define. Right. So you've explained the hat and the fingerprint, but how did you know he wasn't highly? All that glitters is not gold. Even a schoolboy knows the difference between iron pyrite and gold. Clearly an imposter. He couldn't tell iron pyrites from quartz. But the tooth. How did you come up with the tooth? Uh, that was pure luck that I found the intact crown of a human molar. The bone ash in the barrel, the kiln, and the cupels all had calcified bones. And that's not normal. 
No, no, not at all. By the time he pulled his gun on me, I had more than enough evidence against him, and he knew it. Well, Hiley must have been done away with quite some time ago. Seeing his all that's left is ash, his kiln became his own miniature crematorium. I imagine Hiley was done to death at least a week ago. With Bert gone, the workroom was the perfect hideaway. No witness and a great kiln for disposal of the body. He could easily create a false disappearance, and you know how convincing that was, don't you, Miller? Uh, yes. He probably cut his bushy hair and shaved off his beard and mustache, making him unrecognizable to Mr. Larkin. All he had to do after that was tip off the police to Mr. Carrington's supposed disappearance, then stroll away unrecognized on a boat to the continent. When do you suppose the killer moved into the rooms? And how does the deceased Mr. Baramji fit into this scheme? I suspect our killer moved into the rooms last night. The robbery and murder of Mr. Baramji would have been executed on prior information that he had. With a plan like that, the police wouldn't have arrived at number 51 Clifford's Inn for another week at least. Enough time would have passed to assume the Sphinx had made good on his escape to one of the Baltic ports. Did you get a name from the killer? Cornelius Barnett. The boys down at the yard are contacting American police for confirmation, but I think we have our New Jersey Sphinx. Well then, case closed, Superintendent Miller. I turn over to you the catalyst for this victory, Baramji's ruby. <laughs> the other Mr. Baramji will be pleased to know you've succeeded in both finding the killer and retrieving the gem. And on behalf of Scotland Yard, we thank you. You sound relieved. <laughs> I've had a bit of pressure on this one. While at the yard giving his account of the murder, Baramji threatened to personally hunt down and kill the killer if we didn't catch him first. He said as much to us at the hotel yesterday. And I believe he would have. So, um, who has the key to the room? I took it as evidence. Right then. We'll leave it to you to wrap up your case. How does tea sound, Jervis? I'm famished. The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike, written by R. Austin Freeman, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott, starring Dave Johnson as Dr. John Thorndike, Roy Nessel as Dr. Christopher Jervis. Also in the cast were Nathaniel Fleming as Clarence Baramji, William Mask as Superintendent Miller, Travis Remy as Peter Larkin, Bob Helling as Cornelius Barnett. I'm your announcer, Ryan Barker. Sound design and dialogue editing, Jay Charles. Produced by Joseph C. McGuire. With financial support from Kim Abbey, members of the RTP Repertory Company, and Soundly, the sound effects platform. You can find this and other series at podcastplayhouse.org or wherever you get podcasts. This was a Radio Theater Project presentation. <laughs>